if you're making a 30% margin, that means you're not going to even maintain your market share because your business can only grow about 30% organically or however you, you figure out the maths of it. It's going to be below the, the level of market growth. We are Michael Vesey in London, England. And Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. More importantly, you are the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be. We're here to get you there. For show notes with links and resources mentioned today and for other GC resources like downloads, just visit our blog, theecommerceleader.com. Today's sponsor is Eva, the best AI repricer for Amazon Profits. Private label sellers, are you wasting your cash? Eva reprices your products for you, and the result is up to 50% more profits. Eva serves hundreds of seven-figure sellers in the USA and is now out for British and European sellers as well. For a 15-day free trial, go to amazingfba.com forward slash Eva. That's amazingfba.com forward slash E-V-A. Some e-commerce businesses have really interesting cash flow characteristics. It's a secret to most outsiders. In fact, it could appear like magic. But as Arthur C. Clarke said famously, any sufficiently advanced technology appears like magic. But it's not magic. It's just really well-engineered business with great cash flow characteristics. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the crazy reality that is possible in today's world, including having negative cash flow. In other words, getting your customers to pay you months or even years before you make the product and many other exciting things. Jason, what are your thoughts on this topic? How come it's not insanely boring and everyone should turn off? This is not insanely boring, so don't turn off right now. I'm going to talk <laughs> to you about Starbucks and how they operate. I'm going to talk to you about other business models that we have firsthand knowledge in that we use ourselves that have crazy cash flow characteristics that basically mean you win really early and you win in interesting ways compared to other companies. And so don't tune this out, even though the word cash flow might sound technical or boring. I love this topic um, because I'm a student of business and, and love to learn about what businesses do to win. And and so I'll just, for example, since I mentioned Starbucks, I'll just kick things off with, with them. Different businesses have their different business models. And you all, of course, know that some of you do retail arbitrage that listen to this. Some of you do digital uh, marketing, like for uh, like for courses, that kind of thing. Some of you have uh, drop shipping business. Some of you have made to order products that are handmade, handcrafted. All of these businesses have different characteristics. Well, Starbucks, I heard this re- recently, should be considered a bank. Have you heard this, Michael? That people are saying Starbucks should be considered a bank. No, this is new to me. So th- th- this is yeah. this is what. Exactly. Why would Starbucks <laughs> be considered a bank? And then the person said, as it happens, they put an app out there. And the app asks you to preload money onto your Starbucks app. Do you do this? Person, do you guys do use the Starbucks app at all? I, I don't only shop at Starbucks because I don't like the coffee very oh, much, brother. Okay, I spend about thirty <laughs> cents per coffee on the coffee, so okay. that's one reason. Never mind, non-Starbucks <laughs> drinker. Okay, I'll go back to full screen. You're out. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. So here's how it works in practice. And my wife yeah, does this. And and she. Uh, so I observed the behavior from her using the Starbucks app. And then once I heard this math, I was like, wait, what now? So basically, if you get the Starbucks app, you preload it with your dollars from your debit card. And let's say you put 50 or $100 into the Starbucks app. You've given them your money. And they want you to use the app because then they'll give you rewards points and you get a, you get a free brownie every nine years or whatever it is, whatever they're redemption scheme is. 
And the person who was making this case that Starbucks should be treated as a bank is basically saying that in in mass at scale, Starbucks is collecting, I don't know the real numbers. You could probably look in there, I don't know what, uh, 10Q or something like that and find out their financial reporting. But they're collecting, let's just say, m- hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm just making that number up. But they're collecting a massive amount of money from customers before they ever do anything. Now, those customers may or may not ever redeem that cash back as physical product, but the entire time that Starbucks owns it as cash on on their balance sheet in their business, they have free use of money. This is happening at scale inside that business, and it is a magic cash flow trick that is really interesting to understand. That makes Starbucks basically have float, which in a insurance business terms is free money or money that you get that you you manage before you need to redeploy it to the customer that characteristic is just one example for one company everyone knows which starbucks but there are many such examples that we want to talk about in this podcast and so i don't want to you know sorry for camping on that too long here as we kick things off but i i just want to pique people's interest and and explain that this is real for a lot of businesses and this understanding of how cash flows work is just a, it's a weird factor in many businses. Michael, what are your thoughts on that? And even though you don't like Starbucks, do you like their yeah, cash flow? I'm not like, like Starbucks. If I wanted to own something, in fact, I don't own Starbucks shares. It's one of those places where I'd want to own shares, just like with Coca-Cola. I think the drink sucks, but I think the business is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> of course, I'm talking to a man in Seattle here. So in Seattle, I guess you're either insanely proud of Starbucks or you're far too hipster to drink anything like uh, Starbucks. But I would say, joking apart, it is an amazing insight. I didn't know that about Starbucks. And it reminds me of a couple of things. First of all, the obvious thing you said, you mentioned insurance float. And one reason why Warren Buffett um, was so obsessed with owning insurance companies is because they then created a float which drove the growth of other companies. The second example is obviously Amazon. We're all too familiar as third party mm-hmm. sellers having to wait for 14 days to get paid after we've made sales. That's not a coincidence. It means Amazon also runs a negative cash flow uh, business, meaning that it actually has uh, the money up front to then use to expand its operations. Now, here's why I think this matters so incredibly much. If you get paid up front, the, the, the simple insight is Vern Harnish's words, growth sucks cash. If you have a growing business, I guess pretty much all of us, it's almost a, in, in America, like a sacred mission. And for the rest of us, merely a wish to grow your business. That sounds great on paper, but it normally means it's going to suck up any spare cash you have. And therefore, having cash available up front, it just profoundly changes everything for starters mm-hmm. it enables you to expand your business and secondly it means you might actually get to get paid because otherwise you're going to be in the shoe dog millionaire phil knight's position where you're basically broke until your company gets sold yeah so those yeah. are the two sides of you know, the downside and the upside why we've got to get this cracked i think this cash flow stuff i hadn't thought of it that way but basically what you're saying is if you can figure out a negative cash flow business element mm. your customers pay for your growth exactly yeah and for example, just go back to Starbucks for a second. Let's just say they took in a um, hundred million dollars in the app hmm. and their daily output of that is, I don't know, let's say a million dollars. So they have a hundred days to use that money mm-hmm. on a rolling basis. Yeah. They want to build a new store in your town. It costs them $3 million. No big deal. Yeah. They got a, they get a hundred million dollars sitting there to play with. Yeah. Yeah, that's the model that we're talking about. And that is a really interesting characteristic for their business, but many other businesses too. So there are other examples we want to talk about 
uh, today. Should we keep going here on the outline? Any other thoughts on this? Why do you like this topic generally? And what are your thoughts as it relates to traditional Amazon sellers and, and all that? As an aggregator, or somebody who works for an aggregator spoke to me recently about, and those are super financially savvy operators in the e-commerce space, right? Suddenly they're bringing Wall Street levels of insight to our little backwater relative to the, the big markets out there that Wall Street invests in. It's still quite small. And he was saying, listen, it's very simple, for example. And I think 2021, Amazon grew an average of about 38% maybe 2020 recent times. If you're making a 30% margin, that means you're actually not going to be able to keep up with, uh, you're not going to even maintain your market share because your business can only grow about 30% organically or however you, you figure out the maths of it. It's going to be below the, the level of market growth. So you then f- have to go and get yourself outside funding, supplier credit, which I'll talk about in a minute. But the point is the characteristics of the cash flow of your business will restrict the growth. And if it restricts the growth less than the markets you're in, if they're big, growing, fast-growing markets, you're actually going to lose market share, which means your business is going to have all sorts of downsides to it. Like you mm-hmm. can't charge as much money, your visibility mm-hmm. is less, et cetera, et cetera. So it, I think the engine that enables growth is the cash flow characteristics of your business. And mm-hmm. that's why it's really important. I guess one of the things we could talk about with um, is sourcing strategies. Basically, as you put it very simply, who pays for the product? Are you paying it first? Is the customer paying you at the manufacturer, or even as you, you said, the, the government? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm nicking mm-hmm. your thoughts here, but I think that's a really good way of putting it. I'd put it in more traditional terms like retail arbitrage, online arbitrage, wholesale, mm-hmm. but it comes to the same thing. So if you're doing private labeling, for example, as the business owner, you're going to pay for the stock months before you sell it in most yeah. cases, yeah. Uh, if you're shipping from abroad. Let's, what are your uh, thoughts about the, who, who pays first? Yeah, let's apply some ideas just to that mm. uh, simple question: Who pays for the product before mm. it's before the customer actually o- owns it or, or physically controls it? And retail arbitragers it, who use a cashback credit card to do their sourcing, basically, Visa's paid for the product. You haven't paid for the product if you use your Visa card. You don't pay for thirty days. So Visa paid for the product. If you can sell it in thirty days, you have a negative cash flow business. You have money. So someone else is paying for the for the item and then and then you the customer pays for that and then it's shipped out the door so visa is your basic 30-day float tool for retail arbitrage that's very simplistic the challenge with that business model is hard to go to scale past maybe half a million dollars or so but but there are very common other models too about answering the question who for the product very frequently the manufacturer will give you some kind of manufacturer scheme paying in essence floating you the product or giving you some kind of a deal. Michael, you're probably more familiar with those kinds of scenarios yeah. than I am. But that's another common one for people who are manufacturing or working with a manufacturer, I should say, in China is very common. What are your thoughts on that con- specific element of who pays type thing? I think it's absolutely uh, critical to your business. To the previous point we're making, if you're in fast growing markets, if you can get your supplier to basically pay for the expansion of your business. So in other words, organic growth of business, i.e. you're not taking external funding from investors, funding sources, debt, anything like that, factoring, all the other options. But you keep it within your business, but you're really not keeping it within your business because your supplier is advancing the credit. Then that's incredibly powerful. And that's several happens- reasons. It happens a lot, actually, but it doesn't happen overnight. So if you're just getting started, you're not going to get that sort of deal Mm -hmm. normally. But if you have a Chinese manufacturer, because the Communist Party is involved in everything and kind of normal rules don't apply, they're obsessed with getting export revenue and they don't need to worry about profitability so much. Just the the way I can understand it. I'm obviously not an expert in the Chinese financial system. It's pretty opaque to anyone anyway, but that seems to be how it works. Meaning if you can get a deal with your manufacturer that you pay for the products when they land in the UK or the US, for example 
then you've suddenly taken two months worth of working capital off the table, probably three, because mm-hmm. it'll take a month to manufacture. Normal, normally, you put down a deposit before that of maybe 30% traditionally, depending on the size and the deal. And then you put 70% down two months before it lands. So if you can keep that money in your business for two or even three months longer, that profoundly changes the, mm-hmm. everything. Because it means you can probably ascribe, assign half of the working capital or tie up half the money for that single product line, which you could use in different ways, but you could have twice the number of product lines out there, for example, that you would have had just based on that one change. This is why it's exciting because it changes everything. Now, so that's in the scenario in which the manufacturer is paying for the product to be made in in, in essence before before you have to give it to the customer. And in many schemes, if the manufacturer cuts you that slack or gives you that grace, and then you pay them with a giant American Express card, you know, or, some, or something like that in in payments. Then, then you've got, the, and then you use any kind of short term loan tools or whatever, or financing tools. Then you've got an addition additional extension of window. So these are cash flow strategies that are tried and true for people who are, operate in that model. Let's talk about different models. Extending the idea, the question again is who pays for the product before the customer gets it? And sometimes you can have the customer pay for the product before. They, you even make it. And that's not uncommon. In fact, made-to-order items are traditionally done that way. If if you have somebody who says, I want this, here's the money, then and you come back and give them whatever it is, the table that you made or the item, that's, old, that's traditional. That's old pre-internet thinking. So the customer can pay, certainly. Can you do that in the e-commerce business at scale? I think there's a lot of opportunities to do that, a lot of ways in which that can be done. When we started our business in 2000. 7, 2008 on eBay with doing auctions. What we realized was we could auction a physical item and actually have it be sold. And if it's really fast to make, you just make it and send it after after the auction ends, after it sells. And if you control the manufacturer, it's just-in-time manufacturing, you could call it. That's what the big companies would call it, just-in-time manufacturing. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think maybe it's, I don't know, go check your legalities, but somebody pays you for something and you make it and send it, then there you have it. You haven't had to, you know, do anything prior uh, to having their money. So that's physical. There's also digital versions that we can talk about for digital businesses, which operate very differently as well. And then I want to talk about the government for a moment. But first, let me pause and just say, Michael, any thoughts on having the customer pay? Sure. So we've actually got one member of the mastermind in in London. He's actually the most recent person uh, to join us, I think, or last couple of people. He's actually got a um, print-on-demand business, which isn't just the the usual merch by Amazon, although I'm not saying that can't be a good business model, but he's actually got his own printing machines over in Bristol in the west of England. Even though he lives in London, he pops over once a week to visit his manufacturers all the way about 100 miles away. They produce stuff on demand for Amazon, eBay and Etsy. And that's a you know thriving business. It's taken a lot of work and there's quite a lot of capital tied up. I think one of his printing machines is, is £60,000 or whatever, £80,000 mm-hmm. worth. So it's not a casual decision. And he's grown into it over time. But that is exactly that thing. So you get paid up front. If you're on Amazon, of course, the customer pays, then you make it and then you ship it to them or Amazon ships it, depending on how you do it. And then... Of course, Amazon pays you later. It, on Etsy, I'm not sure what the sort of characteristics are of that uh, transaction. But in essence, it is the customer paying first, which is quite different from the private label kind of business model where most people are in that group are operating. Yeah. And the benefit there of customer paying first is complete and total risk mitigation. The only thing that can happen negatively is they ask for a refund or they don't like the product. They give you a bad review that kind of thing. But it is, if you know that you don't have to make something prior because 
you don't know how much is going to be sold or whatever. It does eliminate that risk. So it, it's interesting. Um, yeah. Do you agree it, with yeah. that or th- thoughts on that? Yeah, just basically, right. It eliminates uh, the risk of buying something that people don't want to buy themselves, which is very big. So it does eliminate that risk. The only thing I'd say is returns. It depends on the percentage mm-hmm. of that. In certain categories like clothing. We've got one of the members of the mastermind. He's a clothing manufacturer uh, and retailer. And, and that is that can be big return rates. Like in Germany, clothing traditionally is around about 40% return rate on Amazon. Yeah. So returns can become big in certain characteristics, in certain categories, but mostly it's, it's not too bad. And the other thing is, of course, in his model, if he's printing on some kind of plastic uh, widgets imported from China, you've got to import the widgets by the, the tens of thousands, and then mm. you've got to invest in the machines. But yeah. over time, so you're broadly speaking, you're right. It reduces risk a great deal. It's certainly a lot better than ordering a thousand mm. units of some expensive thing from China. It takes three months to hit you, and then you try and sell it on Amazon, and it doesn't sell. <laughs> that's a big risk for sure that you've eliminated. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, so that's interesting. And people obviously have heard of the print-on-demand industry, whether they can have that be an aspect of their business or not is a different question, but it is hmm. interesting to think about and look into if it's hmm. something that's possible. I want to talk about another common example that is also a Seattle area business. Wow, this is so interesting. And that's the Costco model, membership model. And uh, I think e-commerce operators have a tremendous opportunity to bolt on membership models to their existing business. And I, we've done this in our own business and we uh, have coaching clients that we help in, implement this strategy. So I know of what I speak in a small way <laughs> compared to Costco, but they've done this at ginormous scale and built the model around this idea. And here is the idea. Create a membership program that the members pay you for upfront and then they get the benefits over time. And obviously, Amazon Prime is an example of that in the digital you know, e-commerce world. But Costco was the is kind of originator of this membership club idea. In fact, Jim Senegal, the uh, the founder, learned from a guy named Saul Price. I had the chance to hear Jim speak locally here. And uh, it was a fun evening where we interacted and had Q&A time. And the guy is just a genius at this stuff. And this model, in basic f- terms, is you set up a membership program with a list of benefits. People give you the money and then you deliver on, on the outcomes. Now, in Costco's scenario, they sell their items, at, I understand it, pretty close to break even. They don't make money on their uh, the, the groceries or the, the consumer items they sell. They, in, in totality, make their money on the membership. Amazon Prime, I think, has similar characteristics where Amazon realized that the money is in the membership and there's real power there. Now, for a normal everyday business that has an item it's selling to a a traditionally manufactured item. The question, is there any context in which a membership program would make sense for your customers? Maybe you can give them something like free shipping. Maybe you can give them something like go down list of Amazon's benefits, Amazon Prime's benefits. Maybe you can give them early access to to items. Maybe you can give them private uh, collections that only they can shop from. Maybe you can give them standing discount. Maybe you can give them, I don't know, something else, a, a sign-up benefit or some kind of bonus. List of potential benefits is endless. And to the extent they're digital, they're free after you create them. But th- this is the interesting model here with memberships. And I know a lot of people who have uh, e-commerce operation who are selling on Amazon and trying to sell on Shopify haven't taken the next logical extension, which is once you sell on Shopify, you can also change your business model. 
And if you bolt on membership on top of a Shopify site, it is dumping cash up front that you didn't have any other current obligation for right in your your balance sheet. The cash comes in, then you've got this ongoing obligation. These mods revolutionize your business. And so that's just another example of membership. I don't know, Michael, if you're uh, in (laughs) memberships that you think about, well, you know, or you've got examples that you'd like for this category. So much to say about this. I I think this incredible power. The first thing I want to just underline what you just said, that if you're moving off Amazon or or somewhat not off, but bolting on Shopify on top of an Amazon focused business, that is not just another version of the same thing. As you just said, it, it has profoundly different characteristics if you choose yeah. it to and i think the subscription thing is really incredibly important there's a book called the automatic customer can't remember who it's by we'll put it in the show notes mm-hmm. at the e-commerce leader.com if you're listening but that tells you basically a very sophisticated uh, business thinker and operator i think the guy who wrote that mm-hmm. um and it tells you that a business with recurring revenue is much more valuable it will go for sort of three or four times mm-hmm. the profit level that an average non-recurring revenue business will go for mm-hmm. so that tells you that it's an incredibly powerful thing to do so why should you it because you could sell it for 10 times profits instead of five times profits or 15 times or whatever it is mm-hmm. the main metric that drives that is retention rate or the churn rate the opposite when people are leaving yeah. and that's why i think i'm an amazon prime user and primarily i it for their videos they've been created an entire sort of mini hollywood studio just to keep me engaged in prime because they exactly. know how incredibly powerful that is that shows these people are not stupid this shows how powerful this is and how much money and effort you should put into keeping people in your world forever and ever okay wait think about this people who sign up for amazon prime and don't even shop on amazon for any products they yeah. just like the movies that, it's that are basically on the- netflix my my favorite usage of prime is netflix mm-hmm. my wife is the one who buys mm-hmm. crazy amounts of stuff on my amazon prime account because i keep getting the emails and yeah. oh you've ordered 10 sets of earrings i'm like really ah oh, okay my wife did so i got it yeah. so we we have different uses of it i use yeah. amazon primarily as my free netflix um but yeah, but, that just yeah. goes to show that's crazy. But the other thing is the there's if you want to get amazing uh, up, uptake of this stuff, there's a very good book which is very broad marketing wisdom by a guy called Alex Hormozzi. It's free if you get the Audible version or the Kindle version. It's called Hundred Million Dollar Offers, yeah. and I've been reading this and I've just ordered the paperback version so I can go and un, and uh, underline everything because it's so just good. such a great book. Yeah, it's, amazing it's book. The, it is so good. I You do the same thing that you just described. You listen to it or whatever, and then you want a second version of it. You want to get yeah. the paperback or whatever. It's that good of a book. $100 million offers. Yeah. So um, if you yes. want to figure out a ways to get people you know, falling yeah. over themselves to subscribe and mm-hmm. to keep them subscribed, that, that's a very good yeah. starting point. So if you've got another example, so obviously you're very experienced in, in all this membership. Uh, and yeah. Hey folks, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The E-Commerce Leader, one of our core sort of deep dive episodes. Don't forget to check out our call-in app episodes where we get our hot takes with Chris Green and Carl Hamer each week at two o'clock. Uh, on Tuesdays, I should say not two o'clock, on Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. East Coast or 4 p.m. UK time. So the only time it isn't is two o'clock, sorry, learning to speak English here as we go. Today, we've been talking about the shocking cash flow traits of the best e-commerce companies. Hope this is thought-provoking to you. You may ask what Starbucks has to do with your much smaller e-commerce business. It's a way of thinking and it's a way of engineering things, I think, more than anything else. It's really important to think through, first of all, what the characteristics of cash flow are in your 
own business right now. And the second thing is then to think about where they could be or to put it in Jason's favorite terms. I think it's gold rates that came up with the questions. Uh, where, What do I want to change? What do I want to change to? And how do I change? Very good questions. I would argue that changing the cash flow characteristics of your business could unlock massive growth and reduce risk or possibly both at the same time. So really important stuff. The business model you're running is really important. The sourcing strategies you run also really important. And some of the things that exist out there, like the membership model, the Costco model, or the Amazon Prime model are things, particularly if you have your own Shopify store or DTC store that you could be exploring. So hope these are thought provoking. I, I believe these are actionable, but they're strategy level things, not that things that you can just implement tomorrow. But sit down with your accountant is my advice. Make sure you understand the characteristics of your business in terms of cash flow. And then think about imaginatively re-engineering your business over time to change that. Because if you change the cash flow characteristics of your business as the richest people in the world, the owners of Starbucks as Jeff Bezos, still one of the biggest shareholders of Amazon or Costco to name but three, will tell you that it will change everything about your business hope you found it inspiring as ever don't forget to check us out on spotify or apple Podcasts or google whichever podcast app you use and if you can give us your highest and best rating out of four one two three four five stars on apple or indeed on spotify now that would be great thanks so much for listening and look forward to speaking to you in the next show that was the e-commerce leader podcast with michael Vizi in london england and jason miles in seattle washington If you liked this content, don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast app. For free resources, including PDFs and videos on topics like traffic, products and sales channels, just go to www.theecommerceleader.com. No hyphens, just as it sounds. Thanks so much for listening.